Oh, I made a terrible mistake earlier. I called PK, PJ. Apologies for that, PK, wherever you are. Where's PK? Uh, there you are. I was, I was communicating with PJ to buy in this morning, and I think I just had PJ on my brain. And I don't know if this is a good sign or not, but the clock that we worked on fixing doesn't work. So that either means that the Lord intends to give me much freedom this morning to preach, <laughs> or that he means to sanctify you, <laughs> or maybe both. Um, Adrian and I moved here 12 years ago, and after uh, about a year here, we bought a house, but it wasn't our first house. It was our second house, only the second house we'd ever bought. We actually spent um, the, the, the first nine years of our marriage, like most young couples, renting. We're just renting, renting apartments in the various places that we lived. Uh, those nine years were glorious. Nine years of not needing to worry about repairing anything or paying property taxes. Nine years of not needing to buy appliances or mow the grass. Then we bought a house and we traded glorious freedom for weekends spent doing things that I'm not particularly good at. Like fixing leaky faucets and, and sorting out foundation issues. And, and yet, I don't think I would trade it, right? Because what, what I gave up in terms of freedom, I, I gained in, in investment. I mean, when we bought our first house, it was over in England, right away, right away, we started fixing up the place. We painted everything. I finished off the attic. Uh, we, we changed all the landscaping. We, we put in a new patio out back. Because, because that's what you do when, when you own something, right? Especially something like a house. You, you invest in it. You, you want to improve it. It becomes, probably after your children, you're one of your greatest priorities. Now, I'm not like commenting on whether that's good or bad. I'm just sort of observing that that's what we do. If that's true for us, how much more true would it be for God? You say, what do you mean? God doesn't have a house. Like God made everything. There's no house that can contain him. But according to scripture, God is indeed building a house for himself. Now, that house is not made from the stuff that you can go down to your local building supply and buy. No, no, Peter tells us that it's a house made from living stones, people like you and me. We're not in Peter, we're in 1 Corinthians, and as we continue our series in 1 Corinthians, which we've entitled United We Stand, Paul, in our passage this morning, picks up that imagery of God building a house, the same way Peter does, but he puts it to a different use than Peter. According to Paul, our unity is grounded in our identity as God's house. Our unity is grounded in our identity as God's house. And in our passage this morning, Paul raises a rather pointed question. When it comes to God's house, 
Are you on the building crew or the wrecking crew? When it comes to God's house, are you on the building crew or the wrecking crew? Well, turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provided, this is found on page 1012, 1012. We're going to begin in verse 10 and go to the end of the chapter. It's a short passage today. Let me just remind you where we've been. Paul has been talking about why it is foolish for a local church to divide over their favorite preachers. This is something that the Corinthians seem to be doing. And the, he's, he's given us a lot of reasons for that. But right before our passage, he was explaining, look, Paul, Apollos, Peter, like all these different preachers that you're dividing over, they're just workmen. They're just workmen. And actually, they're united in the work. They've been given the same task. Now, Paul started with a farming analogy in verse 6 of chapter 3. You can see that uh, if you look up just above verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So he compares the church to a field and he and Apollos to like day laborers on somebody's farm. But at the end of verse 9, Paul switched to the imagery of a building so look at verse 9, for we are God's co-workers, you are God's field, there's that farming imagery, and, but then all of a sudden, God's building. Well, in our passage today, Paul is bringing the negative part of his argument against dividing over preachers to a conclusion. He's basically, we're getting to the end where he's saying, stop thinking this way. Now, next week, we're going to look at chapter four. He's going to say, instead, you should think this way. But he's bringing this don't think this way argument to an end. And he uses this image of a building. In fact, he expands on that image. And here's the argument. We'll put it on the screen. Be on the building crew, not the wrecking crew. Because y'all are God's house. Be on the building crew, not the wrecking crew, because y'all are the house, God's house. We're going to look at each of those phrases in turn. So first, be on the building crew. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. According to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder, and another builds on it. But each one is to be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. All right, we'll stop there. Paul uses an image here that even those of us who aren't like Rick Caffel in construction, uh, we, we, we understand, right? When, when Paul first arrived in Corinth and started the church, he was laying a foundation, the foundation is that very first layer, usually underground, that is going to hold the entire weight of the superstructure that's built above it, keep it steady and stable. 
He was laying a foundation. Now, Paul's not bragging. He's very clear here. He acknowledges that this work was by the grace of God, according to the grace that was given to him. But by that grace, he says, he laid a foundation as a skilled master builder. He was not winging it. He knew what he was doing. And now he says, others have come along after him, and they have built on top of that work. But Paul points out, once a foundation is laid, you don't lay another one. Doesn't work that way. Instead, you carefully build on it. Now, I've had a chance in, in my neighborhood, maybe you've seen this in your neighborhood, to actually see some foundations, right? Because there's, there's some weird laws in Oregon. You guys know this. There are weird laws in Oregon. And one of the weird and frankly very unhelpful laws in Oregon is that uh, the tax basis of a house cannot really change unless enough changes have been made to that house. You understand nobody else in America does it this way. Everybody else in America like changes the tax basis of the house upon the sale of the house, not in Oregon. Um, no, in order to change the tax basis of the house, you've got to do a major revision, and, and that would include like changing the outlines of the foundation. So in my neighborhood, twice now, I've watched a little bungalow torn right down to the ground, but one wall underground left in place. And the outlines of the foundation, foundation, most of the foundation's gone, but the outlines of it are still there, and there's that one wall left in place. And what do they do? They carefully build on that, that outline of the foundation and a little bit that they left because they don't want to change the tax basis of the house. We're not going to talk about that anymore. <laughs> you know what I think about it, though. All right. But here's the point. If in order to avoid higher taxes, people here in Oregon build very carefully on a foundation, how much more carefully would you build if the foundation was Jesus Christ in order not to avoid taxes, but to in, order, in order to avoid hell? Jesus Christ is the foundation that Paul laid. Paul is referring to the good news of the gospel about Jesus crucified, and risen. Now, if you're not a Christian or you're, you're wondering what it means to be a Christian, let, let me explain what, what, what I mean, what I think Paul means by saying that Jesus Christ is the foundation that he laid. Christianity is not built on ethical teaching like some religions are. Christianity is not built on the call to service and like make the world a better place. It's, it's not fundamentally, about living a good life or your best life. Christianity is about the good news that even though we all deserve God's judgment for rejecting him, God has not rejected us, but instead has taken on flesh in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, that he lived in the person of Jesus Christ, the life that we should have lived but have not. And that again, in the person of Jesus Christ, he died the death that we deserve for our rebellion, a death that we cannot bear to die. And then again, in the person of Jesus Christ, 
he got up from the dead. Now, how is that message good news? Well, this is how it's good news. That the death of Jesus Christ for us as our representative actually makes it possible for God to forgive us without abandoning his justice. I mean, people like to say, well, of course God will forgive. Like, that's his job. No, God's job is to be God. And part of being God is being absolutely just. Sin must be punished. And so the great problem of the Bible is how can God love sinners? How how could God continue to be God and and actually forgive sinners? The answer is the cross. God taking on himself and then representing us, standing in our place, dying our death. But but not just dying our death, right? Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Why, Why is that good news? Because it guarantees we will be too. It guarantees that heaven has actually kind of broken into history. That that the new age, the the last age, that, that wonderful new heaven and new earth has already begun in the person of Jesus Christ as he was raised in resurrection life. And therefore, for all and any who repent of their sins and put their trust in Jesus, believing that he did for them what they cannot do, that he died for them the death that they cannot bear to die, that he now lives the life that we most need. Oh, for all of those who repent and believe in Christ, Jesus is the wisdom of God and the power of God for salvation. He is the foundation. He is what Christianity is all about. If you would understand Christianity, if you would be a Christian, this is where you must start. You must start with Jesus. We'd love to talk to you more about this. If this is a question in your mind, if you're not sure what it means to be a Christian, if you're not sure you are a Christian, if you'd like to be a Christian, we would like to talk to you about this. What would it look like for you to repent and put your faith in Christ? Now, you don't have to wait to talk to me about that. You could do it right now, sitting where you are. But I definitely want to invite you, if you've got any questions, come find me up front afterwards. Or talk to the person that you came with. Or frankly, just talk to anyone who looks like they might be a member of this church. And they will be able to help you begin to think this through. Well, that's the foundation of Christianity, what we call the gospel. Paul goes on, though, you'll notice there, to explain why the other builders that followed him needed to work carefully. They didn't come along preaching a different gospel. They're they're preaching the same gospel, but now they're building on Paul's work. And he says, look, they need to work carefully because the quality of their work would be revealed by fire on the last day. You see that there in verse, verse 13. Each one's work will become obvious. For the day, meaning the last day, judgment day, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. Now, once again, he's drawing on imagery that even if we haven't experienced it, I I think we all understand this. I was recently in Chicago with my family and we hadn't, well, some of them had done it. I hadn't done it before. If, If you ever go to Chicago, I highly recommend taking the architectural boat tour on the Chicago River. It's absolutely amazing. And one of the things I learned on this tour was that the main reason that Chicago is, even though it's a really big city, the main reason it is so walkable, it's so livable, and the main reason it is filled with so many absolutely stunningly beautiful buildings, unlike New York City, is that it was rebuilt 
after nearly half of the first city burned to the ground in the Great Fire of 1871. This actually is where the nickname Second City comes from. It's not that they have an inferiority complex toward New York. It's that it's literally the second city built on the site. Wood buildings burn. And that's what Chicago had been built of, a bunch of wood buildings. Now you can't find wood buildings anywhere. Well, Paul draws on this idea that wood burns He draws on this idea to describe two different kinds of ministry that followed his ministry at Corinth. Some of it, which he describes as gold, silver, and precious stone, some of that ministry, he says, is going to survive the fire of Judgment Day, and the minister that built with those precious stones and gold and silver is going to receive a reward. That's what he says there in verse 14. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. Other ministry, which he describes as wood, hay, or straw, you see that there at the end of verse 12, and that's, that's not going to survive. It's not going to survive the evaluation of Judgment Day. Now, Paul is quick to point out there in verse 15 that minister's salvation, his personal salvation, is not in jeopardy, but he will experience the pain of loss seeing his life's work go up in flames, metaphorically, as it were, there in verse 15. Now, this passage has confused and concerned many people over the years. And if you're one of those people, I doubt I'm going to answer every question. But let me try to make a few things really clear as we think about these verses. First... What's primarily in view in these verses is God's evaluation on the last day of the work of ministry, the work of elders and pastors. We we know that just by the context. What is he talking about? He's talking about the foundation he laid, and he's talking about the work that others have come and done after him. So what he's talking about is an evaluation of the work of ministers, particularly elders and pastors. Now, I think by extension, we can say, sure, by extension, any and all of our contributions to the work of ministry, all of that for all of us is going to be evaluated. But that means, second, personal salvation is not in view in these verses. Personal salvation is not what is being talked about. Rather, an evaluation, a divine evaluation of the quality of our ministry. This is not, as the Roman Catholic Church tried to make it, this is not an argument for purgatory. That you have to go and have the dross burned off for a while before you get released and go to heaven. This is is not what that's talking about. The context, I hope you all see this, makes it abundantly clear. He's talking about the work of ministry. So it's not about purgatory. It is also not an argument for anyone losing their salvation. Like he goes out of his way to say, that person's going to be saved. So that's not what this is. Now, third, and here's where I'm not going to be able to finally answer your question. We're not told what the reward is or the loss is that the builders are going to receive and experience. Paul doesn't tell us. He just says one will be rewarded, the other will experience loss. Now, I think we can look elsewhere in Scripture and get 
some hints, you know, some ideas. Paul elsewhere speaks of believers as his crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord at his coming. He says, you are my glory and joy in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I, I got I to gotta say, as a pastor, I can't think of a better reward than seeing you guys on the last day, standing there, confident in the gospel, glorying in Jesus Christ. What, what more could I be given? Now, perhaps, therefore, the loss is the opposite of that. The, the, the realization for some ministers that many of the people that that minister thought were evidence of his success in ministry because he had a huge crowd showing up every Sunday weren't ever believers at all. I can't imagine anything more painful than that. The main point of these verses, whatever the reward and loss is, is that whoever is engaged in the work of building God's house should be careful to keep their work centered on the foundation of Jesus Christ and his gospel. And so we need to apply this first, really, to, to me <laughs> and, and to the elders of this church. Brothers, there is a clear warning and an encouragement for us here. There is no other foundation for this church than Jesus Christ and his gospel. We need to be absolutely clear in our own hearts. We need to be clear with one another that we are to keep the main thing, the main thing, always. And the main thing is Jesus Christ. Calvin talked about these verses reflecting on his own day and the way in which ministers were tempted to get sidetracked off into other things. He says, God wishes to establish his church through the pure preaching of his own word, not through human fictions. These are the sort of things that do nothing for edification, such as those curious questions that often contribute more to ostentation or to a passion for foolishness than to the salvation of men and women. I'm sure the curious questions that would distract us as elders are different today than they were in his day, but they're still there. The temptation is still there for us to begin to lose our nerve, that the gospel and the gospel alone is sufficient for salvation. And so we begin to think we've got to give ourselves to lots of other things. You know, like, like the church would really grow if we just had a better parking lot or better children's ministry or, or like just more programs. We just need more programs. If people felt like they were more involved and included, then, then the church would really go. There are all sorts of things that would cause us to become something else like cruise ship directors more than preachers and teachers of the pure doctrine of God's word. It is true, we could probably make the church grow faster if we resorted to the tricks and techniques of marketing, of, of personality, of consumer-oriented ministry. 
But brothers, what good is it if that work doesn't even survive the next fad or the next it preacher who comes to town, much less judgment day? And congregation, you can help the elders here by insisting that we stay on the main thing. Because sometimes the the tug, the pull to give ourselves to other stuff doesn't come from us watching that church down the street. It comes from you as you want this, that, or the other. This, that, or the other might be perfectly good. But just remember, we're human. We want to be liked. We want to think we're doing a good job. You could help us by insisting that we take our stand on the gospel, that we build this church through the preaching and teaching of God's word. I think there is encouragement here, though, for all of us. Because as I mentioned before, it's not, it's not just the ministers, it's not just the elders who are builders. This image of, of the church as a building and it's, and it's growing, it's being edified, meaning it's being built up. This is one of Paul's favorite images. It shows up in most of his letters. He's going to come back to it repeatedly in 1 Corinthians. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul mixes the, the body imagery and the building imagery together. And he argues, and you've heard me say this before, that it's the body that has to do the work of the church. It's the body as a whole that now switching to the building imagery builds itself up into Christ. So let me just now put it back to you, members of Henson. Are you on the building crew? Or do you kind of come to church and you're more like, um, like one of those squatters that we see around town? So we're just taking advantage of the shelter for as long as you're here. Your work in building up the church, member of Henson Baptist Church, your work in building up the church may not look like much to the watching world. You may think that your work in building up this church doesn't look like much compared to the guy sitting next to you in the pew. But in God's economy, your labors of love and service to one another, building this church up, are as precious as gold and silver and precious stones. That's how Paul describes it here. You you wonder, well, well, how can I do that? How can I be more of a builder than just like a squatter? Well, let me give you some ideas. In the back of the church directory, there's a list of deacons. Find a deacon and attach yourself to one of them. Because all of those deacons are overseeing ministries that are facilitating the building up of the church. And none of those deacons are supposed to be doing it all by themselves. They all need help. So so look at what they do and, and pick one of them and say, oh, that kind of sounds interesting to me. I think I could be of help to that. Call that deacon up and say, use me. Put me to work. How can I be of help building up the body of this church through the work that you're facilitating? So there's one way to start. Another way to start is maybe you're in a small group Bible study, or maybe you've been here for a little while and you know lots of people. Find one other person and say, hey, let's start meeting together regularly to read the Bible together, 
to pray for one another. Let's see if we can't just build one another up because if all of us are doing that with like at least one other person, boy, the whole church begins to grow up into maturity. We call it discipling, but don't let that word bother you. It's really just being intentional with one other person, reading the Bible, praying together, trying to encourage one another in growing as believers. Let me also encourage you maybe to um, try to find somebody that's different than you to be a part of this. Uh, Look for somebody that maybe isn't in the same age or stage, doesn't have the same skin color or same family makeup as you. And Give yourself to that work of building up and being built up by another person in this church. God will not fail to repay you for your labor. On the last day, whether your labor was standing at a pulpit and preaching or your labor was simply being a part of the crew that regularly brings meals to to people in the church who've just had babies or come out of hospital, or serving in the nursery or helping take care of the grounds around this building so that we're good neighbors, literally good neighbors to our neighborhood or anything else in between. What, what, what you want to hear is well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. Those are Jesus' words in Matthew 25. You will not fail to hear them, brother and sister, if you will give yourself to this work in whatever way the Lord has gifted you to building up his church. Be on the building crew. All right, that's my longest point. Second, not the wrecking crew. Be on the building crew, not the wrecking crew. Look at verse 16. Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the spirit of God lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. And that is what you are. All right, Paul now kind of returns to that idea that he introduced at the end of verse nine, that you are a building. But he points out, you're not just any building. You're not like, God's tool shed. Uh, you, you, you're not God's uh, like screened in patio or something. No, no, no. You're God's house. You're his temple. And just like the Old Testament temple, you are where the spirit of God dwells. The local church, according to Paul, is God's temple indwelt by his spirit. Now, I'm not talking about the four walls of this building. I'm talking about you. You, the people of Henson Baptist Church, are God's temple. And that leads Paul to a terrifying warning. There's a wrecking crew out there. Paul doesn't name them, but he does describe them. It says in verse 17, if anyone destroys, we could say even corrupts God's temple, well, that, that's who's on the wrecking crew. How, how do people tear down a local church? How do they wreck a church? 
Well, interestingly, I mean, the, the rest of his letter is going to look at this. Paul is going to address a number of different ways that people there in Corinth were on the wrecking crew. Unrepentant sexual immorality. Going to court to sue fellow church members because you've got some dispute with them. Prideful self-exaltation and seeking status. Disorderly, selfish attitudes in, in public worship. It's, it, there's more. I mean, it's a long list. It's, it's going to take us almost to the very end of the book to get through all the different ways that Paul sees people signing up for the wrecking crew, the church there in Corinth. But at this moment, it's quite clear that what's foremost in his mind is dividing the body of Christ over personal allegiance to their favorite preacher. Now, here's the thing. Anyone that destroys the church by dividing it, by tearing it down, by, by whatever means, whether the things that he's going to come to later in the letter or the thing that's on his mind now, by whatever means, in anyone that does this, Paul says, attracts the attention of God, but not the attention you want. It attracts God's wrath. Paul says, God will destroy him. He actually uses the same word. What you do to the church, God will do to you. You destroy the church, God will destroy you. It's shocking language. It is the image of eternal punishment and judgment. That's how seriously God takes this. Now, I don't want us to think that, that God's just like losing it in a fit of rage. Like maybe, you know, you walk outside your house and you catch somebody like spray painting graffiti on it and you like lose it there in a moment and you attack them. The, the, the penalty that you've exacted on them doesn't actually fit the crime that they've done, bad as it is. But that's not what's going on here with God. Paul tells us that God's temple is holy. Why is it holy? Because he dwells there. An attack on his temple is an attack on God himself. And Paul concludes, this is what you are. You are holy. You're set apart for God. You're set apart to God. Not just individually, but collectively. Every single you in verses 16 and 17 is, is plural. It should be y'all. Don't y'all know that y'all are God's temple and that the spirit of God lives in y'all. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy. And that is what y'all are. We're used to thinking of this in individual terms, like my body is the temple. He'll get to that in chapter six. What's foremost in his mind though, is not that your body is his temple, but that we are his temple. One of the most serious sins in church history is that of being a schismatic. Someone who, who rends the body of Christ and destroys the church through division or, or heresy or the pursuit of personal gain. But you know, I think just as in Corinth, the danger that we face here at Henson probably isn't the danger of heresy. It's the danger of division. Partisan and factional thinking. The pursuit of 
personal agendas, the willingness to tear the place down, to burn the place down because you're unhappy about something. So I need to warn us, Paul's focus at this moment is not threats coming from outside the church, but from inside. Now, now, I live in the same media landscape that you all do. And, and we are being encouraged right now to see all the threats coming from outside. All the dangers, them out there. Yeah, there is danger out there. That's not what Paul's concerned about here. Paul's going to come back to this actually again. His biggest concern is always not them out there, but actually us in here. I think we saw an example of this at a recent members meeting when someone who was unhappy stood up and told lies and slandered people and ministries in order to support their personal view. That's a dangerous place to be. And according to Paul, that's a dangerous thing to do. So let me just be really clear. And I'll think about this both in terms of internal stuff and external stuff. No American election. No political agenda. No, dare I say it, social policy is worth dividing a local church. No disagreement with the elders. No frustration over the budget. No sense that the priorities should be here rather than there is worth dividing a church over unless the gospel itself is at stake. So we need to be really clear on this. We're like a big group of people. We are not going to agree on everything. We're not going to agree on who to vote for, and we're not going to agree on all the line items on the budget and everything in between. We're just not. So, so we've got to be able to kind of follow Paul's example here, valuing the local church, its integrity, its gospel purity, the same way God does. And we're going to have to engage in some triage, Right? Uh, Todd Miles loves to talk about this, so I'm going to like riff on Todd here for a little bit, right? There are, there are some things that are worth dying for and dying over. Not many, but some. The gospel is one of them. It's Reformation Sunday. We're, we're, we're not just going to divide over the... We're, we're going to die for the gospel, okay? There are some things that, that you do have to divide over. Not because you're saying that person's not a Christian, but just because we're finite human beings and we have to sometimes make choices. So, like, we can't baptize babies and not baptize babies at the same time. We can't have women elders and not have women elders. There's some things you got to choose. You do one or the other, even though you agree on the gospel. So that Anglican church down the street that I prayed for, All, all Souls, this morning, or, or, or our 
Presbyterian brothers in and around the city, we believe they have the gospel like us, but they have made some different decisions. And it's just one of those things where actually in one local church, because we're finite human beings, we can't do it all. You got to choose. We're going to do one or the other. So there are some things we'll divide over, even though we share the gospel. But then there's this whole huge group of things that we're just going to agree to discuss and if need be disagree over, but we're not going to divide over them and we're not going to die for them because that would be to take something that is lesser and secondary and elevate it to the level of the gospel or, or the, the structure of the church itself. We won't do that here. Now, I really want to commend some folks who have left our church during the pandemic. We had, I don't know, 15 or 20 people leave uh, because they disagreed with the leadership's decisions of how we were going to handle the pandemic. I'm commending them precisely because every single one of them left well. They left graciously. Not a single one of them left trying to bring a lot of people with them. Not a single one of them left saying the elders are false and wicked. Okay, maybe one person said that. But basically, most, most everyone affirmed the teaching and preaching of the gospel from this pulpit and throughout this church and just said, you know, but we just disagree over this and we're going to feel more comfortable in a church where we agree on these matters. That is to be commended. If you find yourself continuing to affirm the same gospel that's preached here, maybe even most of the doctrine, but you're in disagreement over something and that disagreement is big enough that it's just hard for you to be at peace here. Let us help you find a church where you will be at peace. Don't, don't take that issue and turn it into this big thing because that is to move you into a category that Paul says is a very dangerous place to be person who would destroy God's church, who would divide it and rend it over something that's not the gospel is in danger of God treating them the same way. Here's the thing, church, God cares for you. I, I think that's one of the things that we should take away from, from this statement that God will destroy him. He doesn't just care for you personally. He cares for us. He is our great defender. We sang about it earlier in that great Reformation hymn, Mighty Fortress is Our God. It is so easy to believe what you're seeing out there in media and begin to think that our only hope as the church is the outcome of the next election or the passing of certain laws or the next ruling of the Supreme Court. Nonsense! It's just nonsense! Our defender is the Lord. Just as you would defend your own house if, if vandals and attackers came, God is even more committed to defending his house, you. And he's way more capable. So Christian, don't let the outrage machine and the, mach and the fear machine out there drive you. Trust the Lord. He is defending his church and he will continue to do so.
We should be on the building crew, not the wrecking crew. The building crew, if they build faithfully, will be rewarded, while the wrecking crew will be destroyed. Paul, however, concludes this whole negative part of his argument against division by simply pointing out, third and finally, y'all are the house. You want to be on the building crew, not the wrecking crew, because y'all are God's house. Look at verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he can become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. Since it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the reasonings of the wise are futile. So let no one boast in human leaders. For everything is yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, everything is yours. And you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. Paul concludes by saying, look, don't deceive yourselves. If you think the height of wisdom is, speaking to the Corinthians, if you think the height of wisdom is valuing Greco-Roman rhetoric, fancy preachers who, who dazzle with their entertaining oratory, if you think the height of wisdom is finding your identity in associating with one of them, you're a fool. That's what Paul says. You are a fool. If you think that you can gain status by associating with the, the minister that is more numerically successful or, or, or the preacher who is more acceptable to the secular world rather than through the plain preaching of Christ crucified, then you are fools, Paul says. You're not nearly as wise as you think you are. Instead, he says, you need to become a fool in the world's eyes so that you can become truly wise. He's really referencing all the way back to chapter one, where he talked about the preaching of Christ, foolishness to the Greeks, to the Jews. Oh no, the preaching of Christ is the wisdom of God. Now, here he gives some reasons. For for one thing, Paul says, worldly wisdom is going to be judged. It's going to be judged precisely in its wisdom. That's the point he's making there in verses 19 and 20. Paul quotes two passages, one from Job, one from the Psalms, but they're both making the same point. God has made the wisdom of the world foolish through the cross, and he's going to judge them in their wisdom. The the person who thinks wisdom is all about amassing riches is going to find himself on the last day very poor. The, The person who thought that that the height of wisdom was being accepted by a secular, glittering, fancy world is going to find himself rejected by the only person that matters on the last day, and that's God. The, the, the person who thought that it was wisdom to be really, really good is going to find that on the last day, all of his goodness is nothing but filthy rags. No, God is going to judge all the wisdoms of this world in their wisdom and show them to be folly. Their wisdom will be their undoing by God's design, Paul says. So why go with them? Don't go that way. 
Ultimately, though, he says it's foolish because putting your identity in a, in a preacher is literally trading in your inheritance for a mess of pottage like Esau did with Jacob. Verse 21 brings it to a conclusion. So let no one boast in human leaders. Don't boast in human leaders. We've already seen back in the verses above that their work is going to be judged someday, but we don't know the outcome of that judgment yet. Like the day hasn't come. So, so why would you like put all your eggs? Why would you hang your identity on the work of someone who may or may not have proven to be a master builder? Now Paul points to what the Corinthians are giving up in order to identify with their favorite man. What are they giving up? Everything. Everything. He says, look, verse 21, everything is yours. His point is that because of the gospel, because you are being made into the temple where God dwells, everything is happening for your benefit. Everything is for you. And then, and then he starts to list it out, you know, like Paul, Apollos, Cephas. Look, guys, you don't have to choose one because all three of them are for you and your benefit. And then he doesn't just stop there with their ministries. He says, it's really everything. The world, that's a lot. Life, that's more. Death, oh my goodness, even death is for me? Things present and things to come. Like he's, he's pulling these words together just to try to push home as hard as he can. When I say everything, I mean everything. Life and death and everything in between. Things present, things to come, everything in between. The world, all of it, for you. Those of you that were here this summer, this language that he uses here should remind you of Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 39. I know, I know Neil covered this when he was preaching through Romans 8. Paul says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why can Paul say that so confidently to the Romans? Why can he say this so confidently to the Corinthians and to us? Well, to use the language of Paul in Romans, it's because we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. But to use the language of our passage, because you belong to Christ and because Christ belongs to God. He's effectively saying to them, why would you want to be the house of Apollos when you're already the house of God? Why would you want to be the house of MacArthur or Dever or Lawrence? Why, why would you want to be the house of Trump or DeSantis or Biden or Newsom? Why? Why would you want to be the house of homeschoolers or the house of public schoolers? Why would you want to be the social justice house, the culture warrior house? I'm not saying that none of those things matter. I'm saying that all of them are smaller. They're just too small. Defining and dividing ourselves over those things would be like being the, the, the owner of like Piddock Mansion 
and trading it in for one of those broken down RVs that we see parked all over the city. What sort of fool would do that? The fool that would define the church as something less than the temple of God. That's the real fool. The one who would trade our identity for something less, for anything less, which, if he hasn't already made clear, is everything else. You, you, you pick. The, the pro-life cause, I believe in it hugely, less. An end to racism in America, hugely important, less. Having Christians in places of power that can do good for the church, that'd be a good thing, right? Less. Why would anyone trade who we are as God's temple for any of those other things? Henson, you want to be on the building crew, not the wrecking crew. Because in Christ, y'all are the house. And just like you are with your house, God is with his. There's no better house to be in because God's in the house. And God is taking everything that he has and everything that he is and pouring it into his house to be a place where he can dwell forever. And there's no other house I'd rather be in. How about you? Would you pray with me? Take just a moment and just in the quietness of your own heart, consider what it would mean for you to be a member of God's house, a part of God's house. Maybe that means repenting and believing for the very first time. Maybe it means letting go of lesser definitions of the house. Whatever it is, just Spend a moment with the Lord with that. Heavenly Father, we don't think rightly about what it means that you are building us into your temple, a holy temple built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. So often we want to smuggle other stuff in, building material that's unworthy of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help us to find our identity fully and solely in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen for our justification. And then we pray that you would make us builders of that house as we seek to encourage and build one another up into the unity and maturity that is ours in Christ.
And we pray these things in his name. Amen.